Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, reaction to Jeremy Hunt's budget, a plan he says for sustainability, growth and public services, designed in his words to counter a recession made in Russia with a recovery made in Britain. His opposite number, Rachel Reeves for Labour, condemned what she called his Bobby Ewing strategy, conveniently forgetting that the Conservatives have been in power for the last dozen years. It hadn't been a dream, she said, but the everyday nightmare of Tory Britain. Here are some of the headlines. There'll be an increased windfall tax on oil and gas profits. Income tax and national insurance thresholds will be frozen, leading to higher bills for millions of workers. The cap on social care costs will be delayed again for a further two years. The triple lock on pensions will remain, though. Benefits will rise in step with inflation, as will the minimum wage. Help with energy bills will continue. There's more money for schools and the NHS. And a new nuclear power plant will be built at Sizewell C. We're going to be discussing this with Julia Chakuma. Julia is a lecturer in economics at the Open University. Plus Dr Phil White from Patriotic Millionaires, a group of wealth holders who believe in fairer taxation. And Sam Bright, Investigations Editor of Byline Times. Before all that, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. The latest edition has just gone to press, and that features content that you can't read anywhere else. We haven't got a millionaire backer. Maybe Phil White will be interested. There is no big media corporation behind us. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. So do please subscribe if you can. You'll get more details over at bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. As I say, more details at bylinetimes.com. Let's welcome our distinguished panel then. Uh, Julia, I want to start with you. And uh, it's very difficult, I know, to summarise such a, a sprawling event as a budget. So many nooks and crannies to explore. But how would you sum it up? Uh, hi, Adrian. Hi. Really nice to be here. Thanks for hosting. Yes, and you've mentioned it in your intro that Mihant has finally published his budget, which he dubbed the Stability, Growth uh, and Public Services Plan and so on. But actually, what we've been seeing is not much on the public service side. So all this announcement that he's made, right, might sound good at first. He has announced an increase for the NHS. He has announced increase in budget for social care. But still, in real terms, all of these increases in the budget mean still a cut to public services, which is devastating in our current climate, right? We're facing a cost of living crisis. Many people really experiencing hardship, not being able to pay the energy bills, not being able to afford food. We haven't seen an increase in like people needing, needing to visit food banks. So really, this budget wasn't much uh, a source of hope, let me say. Well, there's no doubt that people are going to find the next couple of years quite hard, aren't they? We're going to face a real terms cut in living standards. He might argue that from where we are now, that that's inevitable. So could it be suggested that he's at least doing his best to soften the edges of these tough times ahead? I think I have to politely disagree. The part that I disagree most is selling this budget as an inevitability. We have seen here a political choice having been made by this government to squeeze 
working people further, we're going to see a fall in like real wages and income of households back to a level of 2013, which is enormous, which is unbelievable. So really, I don't think uh, we're talking here about an inevitability, but rather a political choice that has been made on a calculation and a forecast, which in itself is dubious. There are quite a lot of voices that have like voiced their concerns around the fiscal hole as Jeremy Hunt has like dubbed it uh, and its existence. And really what we would have been seeing is like a not very long-term vision budget, but really just like, yeah, further return to austerity version two. When you say that this was a political choice then, what was the alternative choice or what might have been the alternative choice for Jeremy Hunt? Yeah, that's the important point. And we should be very well aware that an investment in public services and public borrowing for something such as like investing in social care, investing in our health service, investing in important public infrastructure projects is different from borrowing money to allow a certain elite of people within the country to get richer. So really investing in certain sectors, green sectors, which will help us also to get off our dependency of fossil fuels, is important and is in by no means the same as like increasing the fiscal deficit for something less convincing, such as like granting people at the top of the income distribution a tax break. I want to bring Phil White in here. Uh, Phil, as I say, is from Patriotic Millionaires. They're a group of wealthy individuals who believe in fairer taxation. And before we came on air, I was chatting to Phil about how he made his money and he's been a, a business consultant, a very successful one, clearly. And Phil, people who are earning £125,000 a year have been brought into the top income tax brand of 45%. So that threshold has been significantly reduced. It was £150,000 a year. So many more people will be paying the extra rate or the higher rate of income tax. So there is in that some sense that the people with the broadest shoulders are bearing more of the burden, isn't there? Well, there's an element of that. And to be fair, when the announcements were trailed and so on at the beginning, I was I was quite excited about that statement that those with the broadest shoulders should contribute more. And frankly, then when I listened to the speech and I heard what was actually enacted, I ended up really quite disappointed and, and actually angry about it because it feels to me that actually, yes, those tax thresholds have moved, but also the lower rate tax thresholds are, are being frozen And that means that actually those on low middle incomes and so on will actually bear more pain. And there is a lot of pain around at the minute. And then in parallel with that, it feels like, you know, wealth holders, people like him, actually, and people like myself, my colleagues in Patriotic Millionaires, it feels like we're in a parallel universe where we're not really being asked to contribute. So actually, we wanted to see much more emphasis in there on taxing extreme wealth holders, wealth taxes and so on where you could raise significant sums of money from those actually who can afford it and not really create more misery or keep some really pretty awful status quo for those at the bottom or in the middle. We're led to believe very often through the media that people who have extreme wealth or large amounts of wealth are very reluctant to part with it. And indeed, the threat is often held over us that people with large amounts of wealth will be keen to quit this country should they be heavily taxed. So what you're saying is something that, in terms of the general media narrative in this country, is kind of counterintuitive. Absolutely. And 
And yes, it is said that, you know, you tax wealth or you and it's a disincentive for people to invest and to be successful and so on. Frankly, I don't believe it works like that. I think businessmen who want to be successful have a drive to be successful. If you tell them they're going to be taxed at 1% or 2% on their wealth, if they make more than £10 million, then is that really going to dissuade them? I don't think so. So yes, those threats of capital flight, of withdrawing investment and so on, they're there. But frankly, do they get real when you look at wealth taxes at a reasonable level? From patriotic millionaires, we're advocating wealth taxes of, you know, one or two percent above five or ten million pounds. Well, and that's not, you know, that's not taking family homes. It's not doing any of that stuff. It's just taxing wealth and putting it to a good cause, which the government can do. There was a very pointed dig by Rachel Reeves as she responded to Jeremy Hunt against the Prime Minister's wife. Rishi Sunak's wife is a, has been anyway, a non-dom, meaning that she lives in the UK but has been paying many of her taxes abroad. She has said that she will pay UK taxes now, but Rachel Reeves criticised Jeremy Hunt, saying that number 10 would not close the loophole around non-doms. Where do you stand on that? should absolutely be closed. I mean, I believe our tax system should be fair. and Fairness, in my mind, includes more heavily weighted to those with wealth and the, the, those with on high incomes. And it should be transparent. And we need to close these loopholes that, frankly, are for the benefit of a few very privileged people who not only have wealth, but the power that goes with that wealth, And this is self-interest in my mind. So, yeah, we should close the non-DOM loopholes. We should close a lot of those other loopholes that go with being well off and being wealthy. And that way we get a fairer society because the Chancellor today was talking very much about easing the pain and the implication that we're maintaining the status quo. But again, as I said earlier, you know, that status quo for a lot of people is pretty poor. We don't need to just maintain that. We actually want to improve things and get ourselves a better society out of that. And this, to me, was just going the wrong way. Sam Bright is the author of Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital, done a lot of work on levelling up or the failures thereof of Boris Johnson's government. Johnson, of course, made levelling up one of the key planks of his successful 2019 election campaign. Is there anything in here, Sam, for people who believe in the concept of levelling up? No, not really. And I, I feel as though I answer that in the same way whenever you ask me, Adrian. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> every iteration of the government's policy is the, is the same. No, I'd say that levelling up, which already wasn't very generous under Boris Johnson, is now flatlining, effectively. What Hunt said today was that he's basically going to keep the status quo. Um, he said that the core Northern Powerhouse Rail project would be funded which is basically a scaled-down version of Northern Powerhouse Rail, which is essentially connecting up the east and west of the north a lot more efficiently uh, than it is currently. And he said that he'd roll on with the second batch of funding for the levelling up projects. But lots of town halls up and down the country are saying, we simply can't afford to build these projects anymore. You know, the lights of the train stations being upgraded, the roads, they, ju- they just can't because of inflation. Costs are going up to such an extent that these levelling up projects are either going to be scaled down significantly or aren't going to happen. And yeah, it seems as though that's going to happen across government, not just in levelling up, but in healthcare and education also. 
Yeah, he uh, does have a job, doesn't he, on his hands? Uh, Rishi Sunak has a job on his hands anyway of kind of keeping on side the right wing of the Conservative Party, that wing of the party that elected Liz Truss. I know she was ultimately elected by the members and was rather more popular with them than she was with the Parliamentary Party. I saw one of them, Esther McVeigh, former minister, saying that if taxes had been increased, or she was threatening that if taxes were increased, that she would do everything she could to scupper the HS2 rail project, for example. So Sunak and Hunt have at least faced down that threat from the Tory right. Well, I think we might see it bubbling over the coming hours and days, potentially. It seems as though Hunt and Sunak have tried to be all things to all people. So we saw, for example the increase in a windfall tax on energy companies. Of course, there are massive problems with that. Shell has said that it hasn't paid anything in windfall taxes so far. That you say, that measure in general, in rhetorical terms, is a bit more of a one-nation pledge. But then you saw a lot of Truss's agenda actually being rolled through by Hunt. So the cuts to stamp duty are still going to take place. You heard a lot of rhetoric around creating a new big bang, which was essentially the deregulation agenda in the City of London during the 1980s, which was a really core plank of Liz Truss's rhetoric. The idea of creating a Silicon Valley in the UK, which, uh, I mean, that could basically have been ripped from the pages of Britannia Unchained, which um, Truss and Quartet co-authored 10 years ago. So you really think that they're trying to balance on a very narrow tightrope in the Conservative Party currently. And looking at the faces of the Tory backbenchers, I couldn't see one that was particularly pleased with the budget. They all seem to be tearing their hair out. I suppose the language, I thought, harked back pre-Boris Johnson, pre-Liz Truss, perhaps almost to David Cameron, to the notion of caring conservatism, but this real emphasis Uh, whatever you may think of the substance, that the Conservatives care about public services. It was a great pains to emphasise how much more money was going into education, how much more money was going into health. I mean, this was a a Chancellor who at least cared how the Conservative Party looked to the general public. You're right. They're essentially trying to roll back the playbook to the post-2010s. We know that George Osborne is now advising Hunt. Several of the people who were around Osborne during that time are now within government. The problem is that the Conservatives could sell themselves after 2010 as not being responsible for the mess that the country was in. They were, in a sense, the saviours. You know, They rode along on their golden chariot and slashed public services, as we all know, through austerity, which they painted as us, us not defaulting on our debts. Uh, you know, getting the deficit down, being economically responsible, etc. The problem is here, in terms of political perception, is that I think a large proportion of the electorate think that the Conservatives are largely to blame, not least because they've been in power for the last 12 years, but also because of Liz Truss's disastrous mini-budget. So it's going to be really hard for the Conservatives. I mean, Hunt was trying his best to try and paint this as, as you said, the Russia recession. And frankly, I just don't think that's going to stick. Julia, I've quoted you a couple of times on recent podcasts, the figures produced by the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, showing economic progress in a number 
of major economies. The United States economy has grown by 4.2%. Economies in Japan, Germany and France have all grown, albeit by a smaller amount. The UK of those major economies was the first to enter recession, the economy shrinking by 0.2%. Now, clearly, there are big global headwinds at play here with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But the, the fact that the UK appears to be worse affected would suggest to most observers, I think, that there are particular factors here in the UK, one of which may be Brexit and one of which may just be the government's general handling of our economy. Yeah, exactly. I think you exactly point on the issue, right? I mean, the narrative of like painting the crisis that the UK is in as like a global afterthought or an effect of like global events is only partly true. If we look into what is causing inflation rates to soar, right, we're talking about 11.1% inflation. We all heard the headlines yesterday. We really need to ask ourselves, why is inflation soaring? And of course, it's like heavily related to energy prices and food prices driving up the price level more generally. But the inflation that we see in this country is because profits uh, have been soaring. I think Sam mentioned Shell. Shell Companies like Shell are embarrassed for not having been asked to pay taxes and to contribute to this crisis. We're talking of a profit of 26 billion that Shell has made. Um, that compares to the GDP of a country such as Senegal, which is consisting of 17 million people. So really we see the drivers of inflation relates to the, the high profits that certain companies and certain companies in certain sectors have been making. And this is where we need to address the issue. They have arguably, and, and picking up on that conversation with Sam there, Julie, been quite politically canny, I would suggest. Some of the markers, if you like, that might trigger outrage, such as the failure to increase the national living wage, as they call it, the minimum wage. Well, Jeremy Hunt announced that the national living wage will go up from £9.50 an hour to £10.42 for people who are over 23. Uh, pensions and benefits for people who are on uh, who are disabled have gone up in line with inflation. So again, we come back to this point. I think that they've been quite careful to make sure that they're not vulnerable to the attack that the poor are paying for this recession. Yeah. I really have to be clear here. I think like rhetoric in itself is not enough and the budget in the end reflects true rhetoric. And if we look at what has been proposed today, it is basically a return to austerity measures, even if it's coming with a certain delay. But we did still see that like lots of the, the tax burden is going to fall on lower income households, on middle income households, or not necessarily on the most wealthy. Of course, we have seen an increase in, in the windfall tax. That's something that is really welcome. That's something that's really necessary. But we're still talking about the UK as being a highly uh, unequal country. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic in particular has shown the massive inequalities that exist in this country. And we're talking about like the top 1% households in this country having more than 230 times more than in wealth than 10% uh, at the bottom. So there is a lot of scope to actually continue and reinforce efforts to engage in a proper redistribution effort from the few to a vast majority of people who go about daily jobs and, and work. I was chatting yesterday on a podcast about the cost of living crisis on the Byline Times podcast. I would urge everybody to go and check that out. It's a really good conversation. And one of our guests on that was James Meadway from the Progressive Economy Forum. And we were talking about 
the supposed black hole in the economy. I've heard a lot of reference to that in the run-up to the budget. I didn't hear much talk of it actually in the budget from Jeremy Hunt, but it has been one of the ongoing narratives in the weeks leading up to the budget. And James said the black hole does not exist. It's It's a purely notional thing. If people are having to pay more for their gas or electric or for their food, that's a real thing. The black hole is not a real thing. It's just a, a notional deficit or a, a notional gap to be plugged. But he said economists and even the OBR, you know, they're, they're moving targets all the time. And I was really struck because Jeremy Hunt said in this budget that the government's target for meeting its commitments around debt had been moved back a couple of years. Oh, it's as simple as that, isn't it? You can, just, you can just effectively kick the can down the road two years should you choose to do so. Exactly. And I think that's the crux of it, right? It trickles down to being a political choice. Uh, and again, that relates to the point I'm making about like the decision of what we are borrowing public money for and in which investments we deem important. Uh, and there's money available to invest into, into green sectors, into social care, all the things that are necessary for us to move forward as an economy. If we want to grow, if we want the UK to be a competitive standard uh, and place, then we need to ensure that the working population is in the healthy conditions. We need to make sure people live in, in well-insulated houses. It's not good enough to delay these plans to insulate houses into, like, the, into the future. All these things should be a priority. Sam, one of the things I think that will hurt people most is the decision to put back the cap on social care by two years. Now, it should be pointed out in fairness that there is additional funding over the next couple of years for social care. But when national insurance contributions were increased, we were told very clearly that for the first year, those additional national insurance contributions would pay to help clear the post-COVID NHS backlog. I mean, that hasn't happened. NHS backlog is worse than ever. Mm. But we were then promised, and Boris Johnson made such a point of saying how brave the government was to take this on, we were promised that from then on, social care would be capped. That was pushed back by 12 months. Now it's been pushed back a further two years. And the, the additional national insurance, by the way, which of course was re- taken away by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, then put back again in Jeremy Hunt's mini-budget. That additional national insurance stays. More people will now have to pay it because the threshold has been frozen. But this notion of capping social care, which takes potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds from people Mm. at their weakest point or from their families at their weakest point, that's still no nearer to being implemented exactly and um i'm old enough to remember the 2017 general election where theresa may was skewered on the topic of social care and i think as a result conservative politicians in particular see it as a hot potato that they're not really that keen on dealing with and i think especially in the context of the last few months you know the revolving door in downing street of chancellors and prime ministers and the nature of the budget today just gives off this sense that the government's firefighting, that the structural foundational issues in our in our democracy, frankly, in our economy and in our in our education system, healthcare system, etc., that we know are problems. 
cancer waiting times, the pressure on A&E, our crumbling hospitals, social care, preparing our kids for the future, for the modern world, getting them up to speed with technology, building our manufacturing capability again. None of that is being dealt with. Like you say, they're pushing back their targets a year, two years, promising that in three or four years, we might be growing again, that we might see two or 3% growth. And frankly, we've had those promises for the past 12 years, and they haven't materialized. And I think, you know, you know, for anyone listening, it's kind of a, a call to arms in a way of, you know, thinking about how a better future might be possible, but also bracing ourselves for this sort of state of permanent crisis, of permacrisis, which we're in, which encompasses war and and climate change and, and building resilient public services to deal with those things, which the government just frankly isn't at the minute. Phil, I mentioned that you've spent a very successful career as a business consultant, and uh, there may be other ways of dealing with the situation than we are in than simply looking for conventional, traditional economic growth. But if we are to generate more wealth, if we are to live better, at least in a kind of consumerist kind of way, we are going to have to grow the economy, grow our GDP. How do we do that? There is a basic premise in there, though, about growth. And, you know, that is quite contentious at the moment, particularly mm. with the climate change and so on going on. And, you know, there are indeed... I was trying to hedge my words because I realised that, <laughs> that con- you know, that conventional GDP growth is not necessarily good for the planet and is not necessarily good for everybody within the economy. Yeah, I understand that. So, I mean, I'm happy to have a conversation about whether, you know, that's an entirely inappropriate measure. But uh, I think many people would think, well, we do need to become wealthier in order to pay for the public services that we value, like the NHS and education and so on. I mean, let's let's take that as a challenge, do we? We are a very wealthy country. We are sixth, seventh, depending on how you measure it, whatever, the wealthiest country in the world. GDP per head is high. Per head, you know, man, woman and child in the country is something like 32K. Frankly, it's a distribution issue. As Julia was saying earlier, it's about distribution. If we saw in the pandemic, yeah, pandemic hit everybody, although actually billionaires now are better off now than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. The wealthy are better off now than they were then. And all that money that the government created and put into furlough and so on, that's all risen to the top, if you like. It's not helped the people at the bottom who were struggling. So do we need growth? I mean, growth is always good. It's motivating all those kinds of things. But actually, even if we look at, you know, the likely growth we're going to get, then that might be 1% per year or 2% per year. That's not really going to change the structure of society. It's not going to make a better country for us to live in. It's not going to solve the inequalities. It may redistribute some of that in a fairer way and so on. But even by the time we've done that, it's not going to make a lot of difference. So we need to do something, I think, fundamentally different. And that's about inequality. It's not reasonable when we've got kids who are embarrassed because they can't afford a birthday present for their friends. So they, they won't go to the party or whatever. Kids, you know, who aren't wearing the right clothes in school or whatever. You know, that's a part of poverty that we see every day out there. And, you know, we've got a third of the children in this country living in poverty and we're rich. So it's not growth at one or two percent per year that's going to solve this. We need a fundamental redistribution, a fairer tax system. 
Uh, a tiny number of people <laughs> at the top of the wealth ladder do have a, a disproportionate influence, though, on what our media writes and says, don't they? So if you talked about radical redistribution of wealth yeah. as a mainstream political idea, if you were, for example, the Labour Party trying to do that, you would be skewered by the media, wouldn't you? That, absolutely. And that is a real challenge. It's quite refreshing to see in some ways that the declining dominance of in-print media towards more electronic and much more freedom of information. But absolutely, the press would have a go at that. Byline Times, of course, is a good publication. We love this. But I think politicians need to lead. We've done some polling around the country of what people think about extreme wealth and you know people think a few more than a few million pounds of extreme wealth and people would support wealth taxes to the level of 70 percent in the country supporting that so i think with the right leadership and the right agenda we can make progress here but yes we've got the right wing media against us we recognize that and that's going to be hard but we have to do it we can't just give up on it we have to do something Sure. I mean, it's refreshing to hear, essentially, though, you think that the economy as it is today, albeit moderately shrinking as we enter this recession, the economy <laughs> as it is today could fund a properly funded health service with many fewer of the delays that people are experiencing, many fewer of the waiting lists, that we could fund a state education system that enable children of all kinds of backgrounds and with all kinds of issues to be dealt with properly. You believe all of that could be done, if you'll pardon the cliche, within the current financial envelope. It's a question of will and distribution. Absolutely, because the National Health Service is phenomenally efficient in what it does. The education system is very efficient in what it does. And just through economies of scale, and sure, there are always inefficiencies, but through economies of scale, those big providers, if you like, do a great job in terms of value for money. Yeah, we can do this, but we need a fairer system all round. But we do have the money. We are not a poor country. And a lot of countries with similar levels of income to ourselves do actually do a very competent job. We are a very unequal society. And Sam, as I'm listening to Phil, you know, I'm just reflecting on the, the many, many, many people in this country who are already going through an extremely difficult time. I've spoken on this podcast before with people like Professor Sir Michael Marmot about the astonishing health inequalities in this country. People are living in one part of Blackpool, dying, I think, 27 years earlier than their counterparts who might live in one part of London. This is something which has existed before the current recession. And I think Jeremy Hunters has made the signs of attempting to help people like that with benefits, for example, being effectively pegged with inflation, with, with pensions and so on. But so many people are going to face an even tougher time over mm. the next two years. Oh, yeah, it's all-encompassing. And... I think it's weighing down on the, the spirit of the nation, quite frankly. This isn't just a, a short-term thing. I think after coronavirus, we all thought, oh, great, you know, the economy's contracted. We have to, you know, knuckle down. We have to do our bit for the nation. We have to make those sacrifices under the kind of pact, really, that when it was over, that we would start to thrive and grow again. 
And now, you know, granted, there are geopolitical forces at play, but we're just heading back towards the swamp, quite frankly. We're heading back towards the 2013 economy of peak austerity. And there's not a great amount of light at the end of the tunnel. Picking up on what Phil says, I think that the optimism that we can find is that we do have models of of success in this country. And frankly, I think the, the government's been negligent in not appreciating sooner how it might learn from those models. So, for example, London is 30% more productive than the rest of the country. So if we effectively did level up um, you know, our nations and regions to that economic extent, we'd you know, have billions and billions more tax revenues every year. Rachel Reeves talks about the doom loop of recession causing austerity, which then causes more recession. We need to get out of that mindset entirely and focus on how we can better redistribute our productive capabilities um, in order to boost tax revenues that will pay for those essential services that are currently in crisis. And frankly, yeah, there's no prospects of the government having even considered that in this budget. And Sam, I just want to pick up on something that you mentioned before we started recording, which was the idea that private schools or independent schools might have VAT imposed upon them. But Jeremy Hunt said he'd he decided against imposing VAT on private schools. He was trying to boost the state sector and there is additional funding for state education. But just talk us through that because I think it will raise a trickle. Oh, yeah. So Jeremy Hunt said that he wasn't going to end tax breaks for private schools. And to put it into context, private schools get three billion pounds worth of tax breaks every year, meaning they don't have to pay certain essential taxes because they're filed as charities. And Jeremy Hunt said that he wasn't going to end those tax breaks because he had seen some economic estimates that suggested that 90,000 pupils would switch from the private school system to the state school system, which would effectively overwhelm the state school system. I had to look around for the source of this, this estimate, this vague estimate. And it turns out that it was produced by the Independent Schools Council, which is a lobby group for private schools. Now, now, we, now, now we thought that the government might have, might have thought that mm, listening to lobbying groups wasn't the best idea after Trustonomics and Tufton Street, etc. But no, they're up to their old tricks again. <laughs> yeah, I think it was VAT, wasn't it? It was VAT on fees paid. I think this specific one was relating to VAT on fees for independent schools. And uh, I think you don't pay VAT on them. And for because of the entirely reliable figures given into him by the lobby group for independent schools, he's decided that, yeah, he's not going to impose VAT on uh, independent school fees. Uh, Julia, I just want to finish with you. I mean, we've heard, in a sense, although some of what we've heard is quite sobering and perhaps even quite downbeat, maybe even depressing for some people, uh, Phil has outlined and Sam have outlined another way to be, really, and another way to be without having to dramatically grow the economy, without having to trash the planet or without having to trash it any more than we're already doing. Uh, as an economist... Do you think what they're saying is feasible? Yeah, no, I think 
we have no other choice than reconsidering an alternative to continuously and endlessly and not purposefully growing our economies. If we do see growth and investment, it needs to happen in like key strategic sectors, which are green, right? We, we, we are at a state of climate emergency, so there is no, no other option as for us to be more mindful in terms of the sectors that we look uh, at growing. And we need to put our focus up on redistributing the income that we have already generated, which is plenty. And uh, yeah, it's true maybe that this budget, the announcements made today by Jeremy Hunt and, and this government uh, aren't necessarily a source uh, of hope. But there is source of hope if we look around ourselves and if we see what's happening in, in workplaces. We've seen the nurses ballot for the first time because people feel the cost of living crisis affecting their lives. And people are fed up with uh, the inequality which has become so obvious during the COVID-19 pandemic. Some people being marked essential workers. Um, we've been clapping for NHS workers. But the pay rise that they're offered is in honest and in real terms a cut to their wages. So I think the public support also that we see in support of these strikes just shows us that like the broad public has realized that what is happening is unfair and needs correcting. Julia, thank you for your time. That's Julia Chukuma, who's a lecturer in economics at the Open University. Thanks also to Dr. Phil White from Patriotic Millionaires and to Sam Bright from the Byline Times. Before we go, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast and Byline Radio are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper. The latest edition has just gone to print, so if you subscribe now, you will get it. And subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month, which even in these tough times, I think you'll recognise as a, a pretty good deal. So do get more details on how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks also to Harvey White, who helps out with the production of these podcasts. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. We'll be back again very soon with another episode of Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. But for now, though, thank you. Cheers and goodbye.